if you want to learn more from data, being able to introduce a little bit of physics, you can either learn more from the given amount of data or you can learn with less data. Welcome to a brand new episode of our podcast, Human and AI, Mind Machines and the Great in the Sand. Thanks for tuning into our geeky podcast to discuss the fascinating field of AI and machine learning, corporate craziness, passion for technology, and the role of humans. We are Uli and Avery, your hosts for this episode, and we're extremely grateful and excited for today's star of the show. He is an AI innovator, strategist, and business leader who aligns technologies with customer needs to create new business opportunities. And I'm talking about none other than Amit Chakraborty, the principal scientist for physics-aware AI. And he has led multiple strategic AI and deep learning initiatives, combining research experience, engineering expertise, and market knowledge to develop new products and services. So I can't wait to learn more. Amit, welcome to the show. How are you and where do we catch you today? Thank you very much, Uli and Arbery. Uli has been a very long friend of mine. I have known Uli for a very, um, for an extended period of time, probably going back at least 10 years. And Arbery, it is a pleasure to meet you. Um, it's morning here in Princeton, pretty hot day. Uh, and yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm happy to be with both of you. Really excited. Uh, hopefully, we'll have some interesting um, discussions. Yeah, I mean, fantastic to have you, actually. And uh, you were one of the first when I started kick off my somehow, you know, engagement with Siemens. One of the first, you know, I was sent to Princeton yep. and, and meet to meet you. So that's, you know, for me, you're, you're somebody I, I look up, to be frankly fair. So I think it's it's um, to, uh, super honorable to, to have you, actually, and, and, and you know, continue to, to engage and uh, have a conversation with you. So we've, um, you know, doing machine learning, then we always try to, you know, explore it a bit of finding patterns of the past to explore it in the future. One of these uh, typically non, uh, uh, you know, uh, correlations that we find um, is a correlation of music and technology passion, right? So, mm -hmm. um, and we were wondering, which does, that, does it apply as well? Is that... Uh, you know, are you playing any instruments? Are you passionate not only in technology, but also a bit of, you know, music? What is on Amit's hot rotation in the evening when you get really chilled at the rest? Um, yeah, the, <clears throat> yeah, music is, um, I, I really enjoy music, um, in particular Indian classical music um, and maybe a little bit the semi-classical version. Um, and that is actually a gift from my wife because she is a professional uh musician where of the Indian classical writing. So I get to hear a lot. And from her, of course, I also listen to all the other big, uh, um, you know, maestros in this particular genre. Um, so yeah, I, I like music, but of course I like, uh, I have my um, other hobbies are uh, politics and finance. So those are the things that keep me occupied when I'm not thinking about machine learning or uh, work in general. So music, politics, finance, and technology. I like that a lot. 
When we found out that we would have you as a guest, we of course did a little bit on uh, of research, and uh, we found out that you studied in Yale, and afterwards you joined the Siemens family, and ever since, so for the past 26 years, you've been shaping the company with your innovative spirit, your creative mindset, and your broad ex expertise. And that resulted in a very, very impressive track record. So you ran numerous projects, filed over 40 patents and are the author of over 50 publications. And in 2021, you've even been awarded the Siemens Inventor of the Year for your lifetime achievement. So congratulations and chapeau. Amit, what's the secret sauce behind your thrive and what is it that really drives and motivates you? This is an interesting question. Um, you, know, you know, you'd be, you won't be surprised to learn that this was also the question that uh, that was asked when I was given this award. Um, and you know, my thing has been that you know there is no real secret sauce. You know, I'm really proud to have had a long career with technology um, because, as Uli also knows, uh, he was a little bit for a long time partner in crime, in so, so to speak. You get to work with a variety of business units, and uh, these all these business units are, um, in some sense, unique and have their own problems that are somewhat different from each other. Um, so, working with these varied interest, uh, varied business units, and they are on their problems will always keep things interesting because you get to work and hold plethora of problems um, um, that you know, needs new thinking, new ways of doing things. Um, so yeah, I mean, that is uh, certainly uh, something that keeps things interesting. Also, the fact that we get to work with universities and national labs is another interesting facet of what we do. Um, you know, as I said, you know, that also is something that you really, that I treasure, and I'm sure most of us, most of my colleagues do as well. And finally, um, of course, the fabulous colleagues, you know, we have, Will here, but there has been a lot and there will be a lot more. Um, as they come along, they come with their new ideas and you learn from them. And sometimes, of course, you little bit mentor them as well. But uh, it's a constant learning experience. And that, if there has to be a secret sauce, that is probably what it is. So interesting problems, interesting people, um, and interesting associations externally and internally. Yeah, awesome. Lifetime achievement, oh gosh. How how old do you feel with that, right? You're far from, you know, being being at the end, right? Of your you know, work, but that's, that's really awesome, really so, dope. Yeah, it's it's a great honor. Um you, you know, it's it's um it certainly is a great honor and um I'm glad that, you know, Siemens has recognized me as such. Um And of course, uh, I'll have to, of course, the, that also means the expectations are high to keep things going at the same rate or even more. Uh, so. yeah. Absolutely. So you're now a pre principal scientist, right? It's, it's a technology, mm -hmm. right, from a position itself. So one of the most tricky things, I, I guess, on the conversion between academia and business units, right, shaping an extending state of the art is, you know, the, the, the role of an expert or, you know, he or she, right, expertise, right, because it's somehow super difficult, you know, how to measure actually an impact. Everybody, you know, management demands, you have want to have an impact on the organization, you want to have impact on view, on problem, right? So how do you say, what is for you an expert, right? Uh, in a corporate letter, right? 
and um, in a corporate world and how is impact somehow measured that's a tricky one isn't it every every year we had the same review right it certainly is, a one. It certainly is very tricky to measure things yeah. but let me first try let me yeah. first try to answer the first part of your question um you know in my mind all of us are experts right you know we are professionals at what we do we are experts at what we do and that that is part of the reason why we are here right um, as a PKE or principal key expert, um, my role is one to define of defining the roadmap uh, for a specific technology and work with colleagues to secure it for seniors. Of course, that's a very general definition, right? Um, and uh, of course, along with that comes the need for proper empowerment. I mean, you experts can only do so much if, if uh, without um, the proper empowerment. Now, um, now, coming to your question of impact, right? Impact is not, um, impact needs to be measured both inside and outside of scenes. Um, mm. So sure, you can, one easy way would be to measure by just looking at the total volume uh, of revenue generated. But, you know, we are not just measured by total amount of revenue that we bring in. We are also measured by the innovativeness of the problem. Right, it's a problem. Is a might be very innovative, even if at that point the business value might be small. Um, you know, also experts are the ones who should protect an organization um, from you know protect an organization from being disrupted. So they should come up with the disruptive technologies or be aware of the disruptive technologies and try to um, try to either disrupt or take um, proper action so that the organization doesn't get distracted uh, or disrupted. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, measurement will always remain a big problem, um, but I do think the acceptance of a certain type of work, both inside and outside of Siemens, um, you know, it's holistically looking, that should be the way uh, experts are measured. Now, of course, for some technologies or some people, it might be more internal, because of the way mm. that particular mm. field is defined. For others, it might be more external, but eventually both would be needed. That's my mm. opinion. I mean, of course, every you ask everyone, I'm sure they will all have their own ways of defining things. It's a very subjective mm, thing. It's sure. not, we have no clear objective uh, approach to defining these things. Let's talk about AI and a bit of machine learning. So we've, mm -hmm. you know, at the very early stage, right? We 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 did stuff together also on information retrieval. What about text-heavy stuff, QA stuff, question-answering stuff? Then, you know, you moved with your team more into predictive stuff, and and even you know, so actually quite a quite a variety of you know the application of machine learning methodologies, right? In across all the business units, right? What do, how do you see has the last years somehow developed right the machine learning community and would you know can you share a couple of you know maybe some cool projects you know you were affiliated to that it's like that's pretty dope that's what is machine learning this is what maybe ai what industrial ai is for you mm -hmm. um you know initially when we got started you might remember that um um 
lot of the things the way we are using maybe i would say advanced machine learning which was somewhat of a exploratory nature now of course it's no more exploratory you know it's a mainstream um, the, there mm -hmm. is a requirement to make sure that um, all products almost all products that siemens produces have a um, have a particular um, ai um, roadmap so so I, I would say, you know, AI has moved mainstream. That certainly is the case. Um, also, when we were looking at it like 10, 12 years back, deep learning was just getting started. Now, anyone and everyone who dabbles in data is a, you know, considers themselves to be a deep learning practitioner. Whether they become an expert uh, on deep learning or not, that, that's a different uh, um, discussion. But in general, um, in in some ways, deep learning and machine learning in general has been democratized, and everybody is using it. Um, and to an extent, you know, there are many platforms, many um, uh, many easy ways to actually use it. Um, so I think I I think it has evolved quite a bit uh, to the point that it's hard to find an organization that is not. Um, relying on deep learning for one of the, or machine learning in general for one of their other problem. AI is ubiquitous at this point, right? Now, of course, very interesting problems are coming along. Um, in terms of some interesting problems that we are looking at, of course, you will remember from the problems, uh, from the, the projects that we did or the platforms that we built, there were interesting problems, not, you know, in different aspects of um, predictive maintenance, we had we had um, we had aspects of uh, parts optimization. Uh, so there was some supply chain optimization problems we looked at. We looked at the problem of trying to get uh, people um, uh, prepared for the field engineers prepared for maintenance tasks. Um, so there were a lot of problems that we are looking at. So we were trying to build a platform on which many uh, AI applications could sit. Mm. Um, recently, of course, coming back to my um, physics-aware AI topic, right? And um, um, there are some very interesting problems that you're looking at. For example, um, this uh, this recent problem that we do looked at with uh, with uh, DISW, which is the software as a part of uh, DI, along with their customer, which is Daimler. Um, we were trying to look for how, for example, you can use machine learning to um, to create a surrogate model of the cabin um, that you know a car cabin so that you can try to um, optimize the comfort level such that the driving distance or the car you know is also um, maximized so it is a joint optimization problem where we try to optimize the comfort level as well as try to increase the, or maximize the driving range. So that's an interesting problem that we looked at. And for that, of course, um, one traditional way could be just, you run a lot of simulations and do it. Our approach was one of creating a um, physics-informed AI surrogate model that can, be, that can be used to run this simulation. So it goes towards the, uh, problem of design automation or being able to design space exploration. And now, for example, we are doing that in a design space exploration needs a, there is a collaborative aspect to it. And we are looking at that in a recent problem that we are um, doing in, you know, across multiple um, TFs. 
And uh, here, the more problem is one of, of course, you know, looking at the entire car and trying to design some aspects of it in a collaborative fashion. And for that, as you can uh, imagine, you need to you need to have a proper uh, you need to run a lot of simulations. But of course, you cannot do that because simulations take a lot of time. Um, hence, and one approach to that would be to create a surrogate uh, or a machine learning based model that can be instantiated or evaluated almost instantly. So um, then another example in this direction could be uh, something that we are looking at, uh, which is to design interesting materials with certain material properties. So it's a kind of a reverse engineering. So you know the material properties that you're looking for, and then you try to go back and find out you know, how to, what kind of um, manufacturing process would you use to create that particular material with a certain set of properties. So, uh, the pro there are many, many interesting problems um, that we that we are looking at, or the ones that we could look at. Um, and this is not just in Siemens; outside of Siemens, also, as you are aware, there are very interesting problems people are looking at. And from all of those, which which project would you say is, was your favorite or the most shaping project that you've been part of? Um, I would say that the. Uh, the the battery life extension problem or the that is very interesting why because it it was of high value it was interesting both for, you know for Siemens that is supported one of Siemens customers in this case Daimler and then other customers were also interested so that is interesting but I, by no means I would say that's the only problem that one can look at it's just it was very interesting from a personal point of view because it was the first of its kind. For me, not for uh, not in general, but for me, it was a uh, first of its kind. But you can ex take the same problem to the buildings, um, or maybe even a train. So there are many other directions that you can take this particular problem. Um, yeah, you just mentioned a range of different um, AI applications um, in the industry, and what makes them so exciting is that they can have a real impact in the world, and that. Um, they can be used widely and that they can also scale largely. But on the other side, and I bet um, you also face the problem, we often lack the sufficient quantity of data. Um, though we need to make use and inject domain know-how into the ML model somehow. So what are the ways how to add explicit or at least somehow explicit knowledge in the world of machine learning. And I'm thinking in the direction of maybe simulation or graphs or even synthetic data or something like that. So um, I'm glad that you're asking this question because that somehow relates uh, or, you know, the, 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 the approach or the methods that I'm uh, recently looking at um, as a part of my physics over AI roadmap directly lead to that. Um, and you know one of the things when for machine learning when you try to do you need a lot of data uh, so that these methods generalize well and also um, they work uh, you know they they have low um, errors right so have high accuracy so however it's it's known and as you correctly pointed out um, there is always not enough data there's always a lack of um, enough data so. Um, one way, and a lot of people are looking at this, for example, is to look at um, um, inductive. How do you introduce inductive bias? Inductive bias could be in the form of known physics, in the form of uh, 
uh, known domain knowledge that exists or constraints that come from just because you know because of the physical limitations of the environment so inductive bias could be a variety of different things and all of these actually once you are able to introduce inductive bias you know the, you are able to generalize better you can work with so you can work with less data um, and um, yet have achieved better accuracy and on the other hand still find a way to generalize better and this inductive bias have been used in a variety of problems from flow modeling control uh, economics there are many areas where people are looking at inductive bias use of inductive bias and just the purely if i were to say physics of ai is more looking at one aspect of it but uh, you know eventually people are looking at um, a variety of different uh, problems where inductive bias could be um, could be very very relevant and i'll give you one um, example and i know it's it might bleed into other questions that you might have uh, for me um, i was listening to a talk by professor of michael jordan um, from berkeley and i'm sure Willie is very aware of his his work and he was saying that he was he was looking at uh, machine learning as a um, evolution of machine learning in four different steps um, mm. in the I don't know if you are aware of that talk or if you have uh, seen that talk. If you haven't, um, you know it was a it's a very interesting way he the way he looks at it, and I I happen to feel very comfortable with the way he did that. So his in his mind, the first generation of machine learning, which you know roughly spanned ten years from the nineteen ninety to two thousand, focused on let's say search, supply chain management, fraud detection. And uh, out of this came the likes of Google, Yahoo, and others. Yahoo, of course, disappeared, but uh, it's still there in some way. The second generation um, in, started into some aspects of the human side. And, um, and that included, uh, for instance, the um, that that's how you ended up with the likes of recommender systems, um, e-commerce, social media approaches. So, so not just backend data modeling, but you actually start introducing some uh, human element into it. And from this, actually, if you think about it, you know that also lasted about ten years, from two thousand to two thousand ten. Um, and came the the likes of Amazon, Netflix, and even one can argue Facebook, um, or now Meta, right? You know, Meta is of course relates to a much later thing. The third generation, and this coincided with the onset of deep learning. And only remember, you know, our journey was the project that you started off with with the interview was mm -hmm. in this particular phase. Um, Coincided with the you know deep learning and interesting applications in computer vision, NLP, speech processing came along. Um, so the and and the new or the emerging piece that is happening is more about the use of machine learning for a variety of uh, problems that include decision support, markets, and so on. Um, that includes multiple agents. Of course, physics area is part of it. Um, um, decision making using um, some game theoretic aspects, you know, Internet of Things. So this is a very interesting way he looks at it. And, 
you, and, and you know, it's a, it's a very um, not just physics of AI. Another interesting example that I learned was uh, was one of, and this is comes on a regular on a, on a on a regular basis that we see. Uh, let's say you are looking at a problem that can be modeled using a uh, multi-IAM bandit problem, right? And just think about it's not just about um, you know pulling one of the levers that you have, but you also are aware that you know. Um, that you might have a competitor out there who is looking at, who has certain preference for certain levers, right? Um, in that case, you bring an additional context to the problem, which says that, okay, you cannot simply, um, you cannot simply, um, you, that you cannot ignore, and in de depending upon who your, who the other, other guy is, or, you know, you will have to adjust your strategy. So, you know, yeah. traditional problems getting defined or, you know, you know, because of market interpretations in this case, you know, multi-embedded are used in a lot of market uh, problems. So anyway, I, yeah. I think I addressed a little bit and gave a lot longer answer to a short question. So um, absolutely no worries. So I, I love to, so I love this, this spectrum, right? From backend to human side to pattern recognition towards market. Does it mean actually that we are ending up at the multi a renaissance of a multi agents systems again, right? Uh, like a, pl a plethora of agents, you know, making decisions. Is that the difference? Yeah, it could very well be that. I mean, of course, none of us know the future, right? Uh, but mm -hmm. multi-agent systems is becoming more and more common because of the fact that we want to live in an intelligent world, but there is no one single place where all the computational power can be, or all the, you know, you cannot have decision-making centralized. Um, so you have to live with decentralized decision making. You have to you have to rely on this world of Internet of Things. You cannot say that all the Internet of Things is a bunch of uh, dumb sensors. That's all that is there to Internet of Things. It's probably going to be a lot of uh, intelligence along the way. So in that sense, multi-agent systems is could be very interesting. In fact, we may have to relearn a lot um, from the from how nature actually does things. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, uh, you know, multi-agent systems are there in nature everywhere. You know, you look at how this, you know, how, how for example, this group of birds fly, bees, mm -hmm. and, you know, they, you can learn a lot from them. It's and of course, we have learned from them. You know, some of the early optimization, heuristic optimization problems used in, um, used in mixed integer optimization is, uh, is basically swarm optimization methods, right? You know, um, that mm -hmm. come from this. And I guess that uh, poses some challenge to problem solvers <laughs> again, right? No, but uh, let's, or, or let's maybe, jump on. Maybe, or maybe yeah. a support. They can, they, they, yeah. you know, you, you are looking at, um, looking at ways from which you can mm. gain, um, uh, you can gain uh, insight how to solve certain problems. I mean, if you think mm. about the, uh, we are we are looking at the stock market on a regular basis. I'm going back to my finance example. It is a multi-agent system. Right, mm. it's a many. I mean, in some sense, a lot of people say that the gear, the market is more intelligent than every single economist out there. Right? Why? Because it's a collective wisdom.
So let's let's bring it up. You you mentioned a couple of times, right? That your specialization is sometimes you know it's you are mentioning it as physics physics aware AI, right? Sometimes I hear f uh, physical uh, physics informed. Sometimes others um, call it uh, hybrid models, right? So for the hybrid audience AI. out there, um, yeah, hybrid AI, right? So uh, for for the audience outside, right? What does it actually mean? And uh, how can we one envision what is this thing, right? Is it we're fueling a lot of more data in there? Probably not, right? What what is it exactly? Can you make it a bit more tangible? Yes, for the, for the sure. Uh, I let me give it a try. I hope uh, it becomes uh, simple. So the first thing is what is it, right? Um, as I alluded to earlier, it is the introduction of some form of inductive bias into a machine learning problem. Now, let's try to make it even more simpler, right? At the end of the day, every single machine learning problem um, can be uh, can be modeled as an optimization, right? Every single machine learning problem, more or less the ones that we are aware of, are solved using some form of optimization, you know? So, so the problem is one of solving an optimization problem that could be high dimensional. It could be non-linear, it could be non-convex mm -hmm. or multi-scale. So it's all the complexities that you can think about, right? And now, where does the physics come from? It can come from simple observations of nature. For example, conservation. There are conservation laws for mass, momentum, energy that we have all learned when we were kids, right? There are also mm -hmm. symmetries in natural symmetries that exist in nature, right? We can learn from them. So if you take a optimization problem, introduce these physics laws one way or the other as constraints, as you know, you know, soft constraints, hard constraints. I don't, I don't think it's important to get into that. And together, if you are trying to solve problems for dynamical systems, for design or discovery or prediction and control, that might, in my definition, that's what physics aware AI is. Now, of course. Um, Dynamical system, by that, I, I say it in a very general way. So a market is a dynamical system. Human body is a dynamical system. Um, a plant is a dynamical system. So you can, I think I'm just trying to make a very, you know, take it at a very high level. Now, when it comes to modeling, these simplify, you know, basically we need to exploit these simplifying transformations. And uh, as I said, you know, simplifying transformations can be nothing more than uh, symmetry. And, um, and and explore these hidden patterns. And so I'll give you a very nice, interesting example that I think everybody can relate to. But before that, I also, it would be incomplete and um, you know, inappropriate for me not to mention the fact that much of the basic theory has been there for a long time. Um, in fact, if you go back to the time of Jacobi, Hamilton, Poincare, you know, uh, they came up with a lot of, these ideas. In fact, it's a uh, as a, as an interesting anecdote. Uh, only you are living close to Erlangen, and, and you will probably know that you know one of the most well-known mathematicians uh, from Erlangen is uh, Noether, and uh, she has a very interesting theory that relates or equates symmetry to conserved quantities. And today, a much of physics every AI is looking at exploiting this particular theory, how you bring uh, this particular um, symmetry as a conserved quantity that becomes a part of the inductive bias. So that's a very interesting point. 
Now, uh, as an example, right? Um, one very interesting example is uh, is what I have seen is to look at, for example, this uh, this concept of um, uh, what what people call. Um, let me take a moment. Uh, people call heliocentrism to geocentrism. Okay, so what do I mean by that? By that I mean, you know, whether let's say we are looking at the planetary data, right? As the so as 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 um, planetary data is all about information about uh, you know the planets moving right around the sun, obviously. But if you look at that and you put um, Earth at the center. If you if you and if you plot that data, you will you will get a jungle. But if you if you plot that same data with the sun in the center, right, you get mm -hmm. a very yeah. nice observation, and from there you can uh, deduce a lot of things. But when you you take the same data with, so why do I say this is interesting? Because they say uh, same data with slightly different with with with. In one case, we are introducing a little bit of physics knowledge. In another case, we are not. Right, or in maybe you can say the incorrect knowledge, and uh, what a difference it makes. Um, so what I'm trying to say, if you want to learn more from data, being able to introduce a little bit of physics, you can either learn more from the given amount of data, or you can learn with less data. So that, in my mind, is uh, physics of AI. I hope I've given you a good example, uh, and I also give the definition right. And there are many um, problems in physics over AI for Siemens. You know, Siemens is you know where uh, you, you see physics over AI. For at first, uh, we we spoke a little bit about uh, physics over AI problems in flow control, but you know any multi-physics simulation, turbo machinery, um, design and control problems, uh, because energy preservation is a very important thing in control design. Um, grid control, where you have the Kirchhoff laws, mm. uh, you know, even positive train control, because at the, when you try to control the train, you have to use Newtonian physics, right? You know, friction and all of those. Um, so it's everywhere. Amit, that was beautifully put. I'm very amazed <laughs> that you, like, by using the planets, you explained us what physics uh, where I is about. Very, very well put. So... When we talk about machine learning and AI, um, especially in the industrial context, what's highly important also with regards to the increasing use of, of AI and infrastructure in different products or processes, the aspect of industrial-grade AI is crucial and it's getting more and more attention. And industrial-grade means like robust, explainable, but maybe even verifiable. So... Um, in your perspective, so what's what's explainability and verification of ML and the MLOps lifecycle? Like why? Like what's your view on that? Is it highly important? How can we um, ensure that? Clearly, um, it is very important, right? You know, um, the thing about um, As I told, uh, as I told earlier, right? You know, when we were, um, when Uli and I were getting started with this very interesting project of platform development, uh, deep learning was in its infancy, and now, of course, it's a very mature area. Um, and now, it wouldn't be if it was not for the research that uh, that went along in this area of uh, introducing explainability 
you know, different um, approaches to verifi verifiability as well as um, this MLOps, right? These are the ones that have made uh, um, this, um, I would say, um, uh, that have moved AI or machine learning or deep learning into the mainstream. Because uh, there was, there, there is no way anyone would accept uh, or uh, if if a black box decision making, and we knew that at, even at the beginning, then right, you know, there was initially a lot of the decision making um, was it, it was basically machine learning was used as a way to support that, and not as a way to actually make a decision. So. Uh, but now, of course, you know, experimental there, I'm not, a, I'm personally not focused on experimental research, but I know th that it is a very important aspect and uh, people try to um, create networks that can help, that can, that can focus on the experimentality part. So if a decision is made by a neural network, it must be able to say where the decision is coming from. Uh, for example, which particular feature is uh, responsible for that? and which even sometimes they want to even find out which data points are the ones that have led to that. Um, so explainability is is very important for the acceptance, right? Um, now, validation has always been but uh, an important aspect of uh, data analysis. Now, of course, in uh, likewise in machine learning, also validation and verification is important. So I don't see anything new there. Um, the MLOps is basically a... Um, that is that is just a sign of maturity, right? Uh, just like you know, um, DevOps have become the way to develop uh, complex software systems. MLOps is basically what is making or democratizing uh, the use of ML and doing it in a way that is that that keeps things efficient. So uh, I think these these aspects are just. Is a sign of the maturity of the field. Um, so, and of course, the use of it in every aspect. So, yeah, of course, if only if anything, these things are going to become even more important going forward mm -hmm. as ML becomes more and more entrenched in every aspect of our life. Yeah, but it, the question is still, you know, is um, I guess if we if we need to scale, it needs to be somehow auditable, right? And it means. Yeah, is is a is a machine learning system hundred percent provable, re, reproducible even, you know, in terms of these scores, and do we need to include you know this, or is it part already of the game of software, right? Um, that adding this non hundred percent, you know, probability of. Uh, you know, of such systems, you know, is, is part of the risk and we, we need to live with some kinds of level of risk. Some of it, yeah, I, I, I would say some of it will uh, will have to live with some of the risk because um, on one hand, if you think about it, there is a, there people are looking at larger and larger models that would make it very comp Even for some problems, you actually need these very large models, right? Now, mm. uh, none of the models are if, if you have very large models, explainability becomes more and more complicated, right? Verifiability, mm -hmm. not so much, but yeah. explainability for sure. So you might become, uh, it's only some, you know, not every single large model is easily explainable uh, now, but of course they might be needed. Um, now in terms of, um, you know, there are, there are uh, you know, people have adopted freely from the control literature to, introduce aspects of, um, you know, uh, 
stability, robustness, where there are provable guarantees mm -hmm. for certain, you know, stability and robustness that you, people have brought in from the control literature. For example, in control, there's the concept of the economic stability. Now, you people have for certain control problems where machine learning is used, uh, you could constrain the problem to be provably stable. Now, the, you know, obviously that means that it is going to be stable, but um, but uh, you know, it's, uh, so so you because mathematically you can prove that it is stable, so that takes care of this. Now, um, but I do think for very some very large problems, you know, people will accept it as a part of the risk because uh, when I was doing my uh, PhD, I was uh, I was focused on uh, medical imaging as my topic, and even there. Uh, we had to, for certain, verifying the results for, let's say, we used to do image analysis and we have to validate them, right? So we had to look at, um, we, we, we used to draw from the expertise of the doctors in the medical school. And if you look, if you ask 10 doctors, you will get a you you will get a you know probability distribution of the, their results. So 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 in a way, when you were, you go to a human expert, you accept the fact that there is it comes with a certain amount of risk because even the best expert is not always hundred percent certain. So in my mind, um, um, but on the other hand, you know, for some problems, even the best expert just doesn't have the bandwidth to do it. For example, recently, I think uh, you might remember that there was this paper that came out, or rather, Google released the database of all known proteins, right? Now, probably, the, you know, there is not a single researcher in the world who has, uh, you know, this is somewhere around 200 million proteins. I mean, every people, I know researchers in this particular molecular biology area who spend their entire life working on one or two proteins their whole life. Just think about the fact that, you know, Google has able to look at 200 million, you know, proteins. So uh, now for that particular model is... Uh, are we trying to going to make it very a lean model that is explainable maybe in the future but for now i think people are happy to see that you know it is at least uh, something that is doable and has a certain level of um, accuracy i don't know if i answered uh, your question but of course it's a, yeah. it, it, it has no clear answer right yeah, and uh, uh, kudos here actually to DeepMind, which which submitted um, the entire thing as a pip install yeah. alpha fold, right? <laughs> that, yes. Kudos, yes. Yeah, that's pretty dope, right? Suddenly you have you know this this uh, amazing because they you know, want to, they want to democratize that particular field, right? You yeah. know, and it will be a, it's a very good thing that has happened. Yeah. So coming come a bit a bit of the trends now, right? If you look a bit in the future, right? Um, uh, studying the you know a bit of XFX, I guess you are now in the machine learning papers uh, you contributed. We see I don't know the last year is pretty dominant. You know knowledge graph will be you know the, the hot turf which will be pushed through the you know corporate and as well as research level. Then following up with graph based machine learning methodologies, right? A lot of things. Um, the last I don't know the last two years conferences were all about transformers whether you're on cvpr yeah. or you whether on others right it doesn't have to be image per se but you know everything is all in transformers uh, architecture somehow so what's what's your bad what's the next big thing here in this research field it's always very difficult to predict something but i think in this case i would go with uh, my previous convoluted answer that i gave where you know where i was trying to 
you know, uh, take the cue from Michael Jordan, whom I really, you know, really respect and I like his interpretation of things. And um, as I said, physics of area is a aspect of it, you know, but I mm-hmm. think there is a lot more to be done in terms of, uh, you know, exploiting the the laws of nature. So let me put it this way, laws of nature or laws of market, um, you know, you know, th- so from that angle, I would say being able to introduce uh, this inductive bias that comes from a variety of directions um, and solving problems that until now was impossible to solve basically is going to be the future. And it's already happening, right? People are looking at, uh, you know, physics, uh, these introducing, uh, looking at physics as a way to address uh, flow control problems we are looking at you know to, you just think about how nice it would be um, if we can mimic uh, if, if airplanes could optimize the energy usage in the way an eagle or some you know some of these majestic birds fly of course we are far from that we cannot I mean there there are people looking at how drosophily you know or very hum, you know humble <laughs> uh, fireflies you know even just to model them, you know, all the somewhere around 200 or 300 neurons that they have and how they fire in certain different uh, circumstances itself is a huge challenge. So, um, but I think that is that is where the, all the interesting things can, I mean, at least we deep learning has given us the mechanism to do that, right? So, uh, so now those are the ones, uh, that is the direction that people will probably take. You know, you just think about, how much deep learning has, or machine learning in general, has penetrated the, you know, the the, the world of economics? Very little. Mm. You have supply chain problem all over the world. Just think about, you know, there there are ways that you know people there are ways to go before those problems can be handled. There are many others like that where. Um, you know, mo- molecular dynamics is, could be very interesting, trying to come up with models of designing materials, as I said, um, that have certain specific properties down from the molecular level. People were, didn't have the mechanism to do it. Only now people are able to do it thanks to the, uh, you know, groundbreaking work of the, you know, of Google DeepMind, as we said, in the AlphaFold or other problems like that. So I think um, from that aspect, you know, I really do believe in what I'm doing and the introduction of um, inductive bias. So I think that could be the next uh, thing. Maybe I'll be proven wrong after some time, but I think so far I have no reason to think that I would be wrong because this is, the trend seems to validate that. Um, because, uh, and also this use of more and more data. Um, you know, you not only look at this day, you know, the AlphaFold and the Google's work, but also whatever work is going on in the general area of self-driving cars. Um, as I said, near time or near real time simulation of flow control. And um, mm. the other yeah. day I learned about another interesting example that is done by none other than our own health idiots, which is uh, basically as you are being imaged in an MRI machine, right? You can almost real-time figure out what other aspects or other um, imaging other areas of your body or needs to be or where you need to focus on the focus the imaging um, in addition this was unthinkable while the patient is in um, in the MRI and how why you can do it because you can 
you can process billions of images at a time. Um, so machine learning yeah. has given us these capabilities. Now it's a matter of imagining and coming up with um, interesting applications. So these applications can be can now be enabled now that we have the infrastructure, we have the ability to do so. So that's what I think, you know, the, where the future would be. To use more and more data, um, in some cases, in other cases, probably to exploit more what we know, what we can see and learn from nature. time was really flying and we already reached the last question and now you shared a lot about uh, what you're doing professionally and now we're also curious um, especially with re regards to your background that maybe there's some things you could share with the audience since you've gained tons you gained tons of experience in the industry as well as in academia you held various leadership roles worked together with different types of people in different places in the world and maybe um, there's some advice that you have um, to give genius minds out there who are crazy about ideas or who would, would like to yeah, become better leaders. So um, yeah, what would you tell those people? Are there any advice that you would like to share? Um, I think as far as advice goes, I would say uh, in my mind, three things are very important. One is patience, right? As youngsters, people often lack that and, you know, make uh, decisions uh, or that they really in future don't, um, uh, maybe not, I wouldn't say repent, but maybe in hindsight is not the best one, right? Um, the second thing is, of course, accepting change. You know, so I think we all have gone, any of one of us who have been around for a little bit have seen that, you know, today we, the, the world is very different than the one from which we, uh, when we graduated. So things uh, constantly change um, and you have to accept that. And along with that comes the need to continue to learn, um, learn new methods, learn new approaches, learn from others. Uh, so all of those uh, um, are very important. So that's that's what I would say, you know, nothing, nothing extraordinary, very simple beautiful and very concise and with that we move to the last part of this episode and mm -hmm. um, so I mean first of all thanks so much for your time uh, we know how busy you are and that you took the time um, to share all these um, insights and experience with us it was a great pleasure and um, for the closing we we always have a little game and it's called authentic autocomplete It's Uli's favorite game in the world. Hashtag and, trademark. Hashtag trademark. And for yeah. the closing, I would love to give you <laughs> a couple of sentence starters. And I would like you um, to complete them. So, Amit, are you ready for this challenge? Let's give it a try. Let's give it a try. So, let's start with an easy one. Siemens is... Um, I would say a very dynamic organization and for an innovator with the right mindset, a great place to work. Amazing. Physics aware AI is? I think I've already answered it multiple times, but I'll try again, which is uh, physics aware AI is introducing inductive bias in the form of known physics within a machine learning framework. So easy in one sentence, right? Technology with purpose is? Solving technical problems of high business value. 
There we go. Beautiful. Innovation is? Um, finding the best solution for a given problem, which often leads to new way of doing things. Amazing. And last but not least, if I could invent a rule for everyone in the world to follow, it would be? To keep things simple. <laughs> that was simple for sure. That was simple for sure, I would say. Hey, Amit, thanks so much, right? I'm, I'm, I feel you. honored, you know, to, to, to co collaborate with you, to, to have you at the first peer. I think you're very empathic, you're very open, you're passionate, and you, makes, you, know, you make this organization, operating system at this organization, very special. So thanks for, for being with us today. Thank you very much for the opportunity, and I hope I my answers are of some, some value to the people who are going to listen. Thank you very much. Yeah, folks out there, you have heard it, right? I connect to Amit on LinkedIn or, you know, post some question below the comment section. And obviously stay tuned. There's a lot more to come. So stay bold, committed and open-minded. And we hear us at the next Siemens Ally podcast. Cheers. Cheers.